Good. Well, good evening. Um, it's it's great to be here. Um, and there's a lot of there are quite a few things that I'm passionate about. And uh, having worked in in system engineering for many years, it is really something that that I enjoy. And I was telling uh, somebody just now that you know, since I was this size, I wanted to become an engineer. And it's it's awesome to be able to do that every day. Um, and my original title was Why Systems Engineering on Salt. Um, but it's, it, I, I think uh, Paul's actually very good uh, in, in summarizing it um, because it is a non-defense project. And many people ask the question, why the heck would you do systems engineering on that? And at that stage, in the telescope world, people were not using systems engineering as a rule. Um, we were one of the first telescopes uh, in the world to actually try actually do systems engineering. And uh, Kobus Meiring, who was the project manager that you guys met in this November, uh, was the project manager for SALT. Uh, and I wanted to get out of the rat race uh, in Gauteng, and so I was looking for an opportunity in Cape Town. Uh, and SALT looked like one of those opportunities. Um, and he really gave me a lot of free reign to apply systems engineering on the telescope. So I could define the development process, I could define uh, a lot of the strategy, the document numbering system, the uh, what does what documents are required, uh, you know, and and what is needed from every team to actually deliver. But before I get ahead of myself, maybe I should uh, go to my presentation. So these are some of the projects that I've worked on, um, and it's it's really an awesome privilege. And I don't want to try and stand here and pretend that I'm things I'm not. Um, and I cannot take the credit for making these things happen. Um, it's, it's all about team and people. Um, but it's been a wonderful journey and a lot of learning uh, to be really working with top-class international people on many of these projects. Um, my company, AlphaDot, um, really has, has a passion around job creation. And it's job creation around manufacturing, because that's when you really start getting jobs. Um, this is a graph that comes from the IDC um, showing how the, the service contribution to our GDP in South Africa has grown since 1980. And, and for many people they say, oh, that's, that's good, because it's, jo it's job creation and, and, and whatever, but it's displacing other things, which I'll come to now. Um, and it sort of followed the trend of the world, except it's, it's even more. And if you compare it to the other developing countries, it's, it's a lot, lot higher. And that's mostly the cell phone industry, cell phone and banking, um, which, is, which is considered a service industry. Um, if you look at manufacturing, where the real jobs are, that's what's happened at the same time. Um, and a lot of that is because South Africa has lost... <coughs> Um, intellectual property. We are not developing new products outside the defense to a large extent. Um, I'm generalizing a lot, um, but that, that I think is, is at the heart of the problem. Um, and if you look at this graph showing the exports of products from South Africa as a, as a, as a percentage of the total, motor vehicles, fantastic. No South African intellectual property or very little. Iron and steel, vehicle parts, da-da-da-da. When you get to the blue arrow, that's when you get the real first South African product, which is being exported in substantial quantities. Now, these bins are not individual products. They are the export codes that are used by the Department of Trade and Industry. Um, and, and what I would want to see is a lot more growth to the left of South African products in general. Um, and I really believe it can make a, a huge impact on our um, economy. So the, the passion for, for my company is really job creation through newly developed South African products being manufactured locally. And that's really what I mean uh, with my sort of tagline there, high impact innovation. So it's, it's working in those areas that can actually have that scale of impact. Um, so just one slide on, on the company itself. Uh, what we do, um, I don't want to say too much about it. Um, but it's really applying systems engineering um, and 
development management skills that I've developed over the years with collaborators, um, especially in, in, in those fields. Um, AlphaDot is sort of the, the mothership. We have um, Edapt, which is focusing mostly on data security um, for small, small businesses. Uh, Batco, uh, also a, a fairly new company, um, mostly lithium-ion batteries, although there are other batteries that are creeping in, um, and then a lot of consulting, um, which we're doing. So the, the sort of next chapter of my talk is why system engineering is important and, and, and why it helps solve that problem. And I'm not going to try and be too clever about it. It's really just some basic um, numbers which I use when I go to managers and try and explain to them why they should have a system engineering budget and why it makes sense. Um, and I, I'm sure many of you have read these studies or know about it, but this was the one thing that really got me going, um, must have been about 20 years ago, um, when I read this study, um, which is done by the, system the Software Engineering Institute many years ago, where they surveyed many companies in the United States. And they, they said, what does it cost to write a program of 200,000 lines of software? And it was similar complexity software that the different companies were doing. And the amazing thing was the huge spread of effort that these companies quoted and actually delivered for the work. Going from 595 man months to 16 man months for the same software. And then they said, why is this? What, what can actually cause that? And they came up with this whole uh, spice um, categorization of companies where they get different maturity levels uh, and, and they try to distinguish what are those things that certain companies do that others do not do. And a lot of that is just a systematic way of thinking, documenting, having design reviews, writing down what your customer wants, um, having uh, records, having documentation. Um, and it's, it's really a, a top-down process being implemented in stages in this thing. And ISO 9001 puts 90% of the things that they actually have in there into a process, um, or at least a guideline for, for a company to start using. Um, and this, so this is not directly system engineering speak, but it's talking about the same same type of thing. Um, the second study that made a, quite an impression on me is a, a guy by the name of Boom. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation. He wrote a book called Economics of Software. Um, he's at the University of Southern California. Um, but they looked at the defense projects and they said, okay, why are certain defense projects overspending? Uh, and what is the core reason for them f failing? And they looked at the cost of fixing a defect when you find it in the requirements phase versus what, you've, what it costs you when the product is in operation. And these were many complex projects. So that's the black line. And you can see the, on the right it's about a fact 200. <laughs> More expensive to fix the problem in operation compared to uh, one in the requirements phase. So if you are skipping phases, then you're obviously just increasing your risk. Um, and then for smaller projects, it's not quite as harsh as that. That's the green line. Um, but it's still true. So, so my philosophy is the, the, the principles of system engineering should actually be in every product development. It's not just for complex systems. There, there's certain basics of writing a specification, doing a design, doing a review, the type of things that, that we as system engineers do and bring to the table that every single engineer should actually be taught and, and should be doing. And any company that does product development should actually be doing those things. Um, that's, that's sort of my mantra and I might say it a few <laughs> times more this night, tonight. Um, the reason behind that um, is as you get increasing complexity, so the moment it's, it's more than fits into one person's head, you get an increasing number of, of risks jumping up. So as the number of components forming a system increase, 
And I mean, you guys know this. I'm just going to go through this very quickly. You need more money, so the stakes are higher. More people, the, the consequence of failure is higher. More interfaces, more systems, um, and it really means the risk goes up. So there's an increasing need for a structured multidisciplinary engineering approach. Um, and so when we were really starting SALT, um, we had a lot of discussions with the astr astronomical astronomer community um, and convinced them, okay, but SALT was in that category. And as I go through some of the presentation now, um, I hope you'll see that it really is a very complex system with a lot of demands um, that really justified us doing that. But it didn't mean there was much investment. So it was a, a really very heavily tailored system engineering process. I did not use the system engineering handbook. I don't think it existed at that time. Um, I did not use my mill standards. Um, a lot of it was just sitting, what makes sense? Let's put a process together um, and, and, and make things work. Um, what I'm going to show you is really gleaned from three different presentations that I've given over the years at various conferences relating to SALT. But I've got a lot of co-authors there, which I have to acknowledge um, in this process. Um, if you look at SALT today, these are the organizations that are part of it. So it's, it's, it's actually a PTY limited, but it's got lots of different shareholders. South Africa owns about 30% of the telescope. And each uh, funder has use of SALT in the percentage of its shareholding depending on how much it's contributed. Um, and you can see there it's, it's from all over the world. And, and so they actually purchase a time window on SALT to use it. Um, this is what the site looked like before SALT was built. This photo is taken from where SALT stands today. Um, the youngest telescope there that, that actually belonged to South Africa. There's a, there was a recent UK one that they, that they built. But the youngest telescope at that time there was from before the Second World War. So that was the level of the technology within the South African astronomical community. And SALT is the largest telescope in the Southern Hemisphere, the third largest in the world. So it is a huge leap. Uh, none of the team had ever built a telescope before. Uh, in fact, when I visited there after being, um, being um, appointed, it was the first time I'd actually seen one from close by. So it is a huge learning curve. There's the sort of mon money we were talking about for the actual telescope, 18 million for the scientific instrumentation, four and a half, and then we had to budget in the first 10 years of operation. So we had a fixed budget for operation from day one. So we had to engineer to that cost as well. Um, which is, is quite an interesting problem. Um, there was a board. The scientific community uh, was represented by what we called the science working group. So they were the technical representatives of the customer. And it was a committee comprising all these different institutions. And I had to report there as system engineer and say, this is what we're doing. They helped me write the specification. They provided their scientific requirements, and I had to actually translate that into technical requirements for the telescope. Um, the project manager uh, is in the middle of the block there. Uh, next to him on the left is a project scientist. So that was a local scientist that is the lead scientist on the project. So he's the first interface if there's a science question. Uh, and then the, the community that made the instruments, the scientific instruments, which were mostly from these universities that were uh, shareholders. And then the team at the bottom, the numbers in brackets are the, 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 the number of people in those teams. So within my systems engineering team, we were three. Um, I had an, an optical uh, designer, um, a Polish guy, who's very skilled, and I had somebody that helped me with the interface control. Um, and that was it. And the, I was also responsible for the telescope control system, and there we had a team of eight people writing software. Um, but once again, it, it is all about teamwork. So there were many, many contracts, and a lot of the stuff is not uh, available in South Africa. Um, the, 
I'm going to come to the telescope design in a moment, but the, the primary mirror, which is the first thing that the light hits after coming very, very far, is, is 10 meters in diameter. Um, and it comprises 91 individual segments which have to be aligned very precisely. Um, but it's, it's not normal glass. It has to be um, thermally uh, stable. So it cannot expand and shrink and deform as a result of temperature. So it's a very special ceramic that came from Russia that was polished into its spherical shape by Kodak. Because it's spherical and the sphere doesn't focus properly, we had to have a thing called a spherical aberration corrector, which was a, a four element optical device that Sajim made. Uh, first local big company, BKS Advantech in Pretoria, did the structure and the dome. The tracker was done here by Retech Radar Systems in Stellenbosch. Uh, and yeah, there's a long list, but the, the edge sensors, I'm going to show you a bit more about it, were done by a, f a French company. Um, but the, the integration and testing was done in-house, the system analysis and design was done in-house, and the software um, for the, the telescope control system was done in-house. I don't think it's on the list there. So this is really the, the concept of SALT. Um, a normal telescope has the ability to point anywhere on the sky. Um, but when you get to such a big telescope, to give you an example uh, or an idea, um, this, this structure weighs 80 tons. Okay, the outside structure. Um, if you are, and I have to point that from horizontal to vertical, you can imagine the, st the stresses in that steel and the amount of deformation. But you're talking about light. Okay, nanometers, 630 nanometer wavelength is, is red light. Um, so you need to focus the incoming light yeah, to a point uh, within uh, six microns. Okay, and you have to keep it there as the Earth rotates, which is for hours on end, and you need to be able to follow that particular frame on the sky during that whole period um, and not blur the image that you're taking or distort the science. Because you're trying to look at faint objects. That's why you're building such a big telescope is to look fainter and fainter. So it's, it's really very few photons that are actually arriving all this way. Um, so this is actually a novel concept, and, and this was the second telescope in the world using that concept, where you have a fixed angle. Instead of being able to follow the star all the way, um, it's tilted at 37 degrees. Um, and then, it, because it uses a spherical mirror, you can actually, um, any part of the mirror is the same. So you can actually use parts of the mirror and, and track over here. So if, if this thing is parked like that and there's a star at infinity, the light comes in, it focuses here, but as that star moves, this focal point will shift. And, and it actually follows a, uh, a spherical path on that thing. So there's a tracker then that actually follows that path. And that's the only moving part. But that's still two and a half tons that has to be controlled very precisely to that six, six micron accuracy. Um, what this picture is really representing is we have this tower which is used to align the mirrors optically. So in the beginning of the evening, there's a, a very special instrument there that shines laser light onto the mirrors. They reflect it back and they have to be aligned to within 0.3 of an arc second. Now, I don't know if you know how much that is, but basically if you took one of those mirrors and put a stick on the, end, on, on the mirror that's a kilometer long, you're talking about 0.3 millimeters at the end of that stick. Um, that's the accuracy with which you need to align them so that they perform as though they are optically one surface. That's what you're after. And you need to keep it there, even though this is a steel truss that they're mounted on, even though this is exposed to, to, to atmosphere, because it's obviously open, but there are other reasons to expose it to atmosphere. And the steel truss expands about... Uh, Eight millimeters, I think, through the night. Okay, so you need to, to compensate for all of that. But anyway, what's good about this concept is you, you get about 70% of the sky because you, you have this 12-degree donut, but all this, because the Earth rotates, 70% of the stars move through the donut at some stage or another. But it only costs 20% of the cost of a traditional telescope. Um, 
And that's why South Africa could afford actually to participate in such a huge project or a huge telescope. Um, and, and we didn't need to follow a traditional design. Um, so this is a bit of an artist's impression. Um, I don't know, have any of you ever visited SALT? Okay, so you, you, some of you have been there. So that is sort of what it looks like. Um, just the different parts, the center of curvature sensor, the optical payload you can see there, and, and the tracker is, is the moving part. The payload is really where, every th where all the light ends up. So that's where the sensors are, the different scientific instruments. Um, and underneath we have the, the, the sort of control room and buildings and stuff. Um, and in the middle, a, a thermal, thermally stable room where we also take some of the light through an optical fiber for some very sensitive instruments which, which stay at the bottom. Um, and that room has a, has a spec of no more than one degree temperature variation through the year. So it has to be very stable. Um, we started digging the ground at about in, in September, um, if I remember correctly. And we had to go down. This was for the tower, the foundation for the tower. We had to go right down onto rock. Because that tower, even in, under wind conditions, wasn't allowed to shake. And it's actually two concentric tubes. The outer one keeps the wind out away from the inner tube, which actually has the instrument on and they actually have separate foundations and lots of stuff like that. Um, so that's where I learned a little bit about civil engineering. Um, the most important objective is a good image quality. So the more you can concentrate that light onto one spot, let's say it's a CCD where it ends up, the more energy there is, the more likelihood there is of you actually detecting it. If it's smeared over more pixels, then you need a lot more light to actually go above the noise threshold. Um, so it's all about image quality. Um, I've actually mentioned some of these sort of key challenges. Um, yeah, I've, I've mentioned mo most of them. Perhaps the, the last um, bullet is, is important, a thing called dome seeing. Um, many people ask, why were the telescopes built at Sutherland? And if you look at the stars at night, you will see that they, f they flicker a little bit. It's as a result of the light coming through the atmosphere, and you actually have hot and cold air mixing, which has a refractive index then, and it bends the light. But it's varying all the time, so you get this flickering. Obviously, if that light is ending up on a sensor, it's going to smear. So you don't want that. So there was a lot of research done, um, I think, in the 30s. Uh, when, when they, before they built the first telescopes there, um, and Sutherland was a good place because there's a lot of laminar flow of air, so you, do, you get stratification and, and it's, it's a lot better. But now, when you build your telescope, you mustn't disturb this perfect environment. So, obviously, you cannot have heat sources, but not just active heat sources like electronics and motors and computers and things like that and people. Um, you also cannot have passive heat sources, like concrete, like steel, um, because the telescope wants to be at ambient. For you to not have any of this effect, everything needs to be kept at ambient, and ambient changes through the night. In fact, sort of uh, afternoon to morning variation at Sutherland can be 20 degrees. And everything that is exposed to the atmosphere should be following the temperature as accurately as possible. Um, so I, I did write a few impossible specifications um, that caught me out later, um, such as something should not radiate and it should not reflect light within this visible wavelength. But then I learned very quickly that paint, what it doesn't absorb, it reflects. So you, <laughs> you, you have the one or the other. Um, and... Yeah, and there's a lot of detail that went into actually achieving that, which I don't have time to go into now, but I'll, I'll, I'll touch on it in a minute. But we, we built these louvers into the building, which gave you free flow of air through the building uh, to keep it um, cool during the night. But it's basically a huge fridge. At, during the daytime, it's air-conditioned to the predicted temperature 8 o'clock in the evening. So we've got um, 
sort of complex weather prediction models that uses data from the, the South African Weather Service, um, predicting that temperature all the time, and then through the day, the set point of the air conditioning is adapted. Uh, and then when the, the telescope opens, which is normally 6, 7, uh, it's a bit colder, uh, and then by 8 o'clock, everything is stabilized, and they can start the observation. Um, So to, to, to chase that specification, one of the first things we had to do was to develop an image quality uh, error budget. So adding up every single little thing that can contribute to bad quality. Um, and this is the amount of smearing in arc seconds. So an arc second is a, a measurement of an angle on the sky. Okay? It's, it's, it's one three thousand six hundredth hundredth of a degree. So it's quite a small angle, um, but that's how much smearing you get at Sutherland in, 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 as a median uh, over the, the various conditions um, for, yeah, at Sutherland. So we said, okay, let's aim for a telescope which does not degrade that significantly. So we will go for half that number. So that in the end, the telescope performance will be a, a 1.3. Um, and then we said, okay, what, what actually adds up into that? Um, there's the actual optical performance of the telescope. There is now the contribution of the, the dome and the facility to this atmospheric distortion or atmospheric effect. And then there's the payload positioning, which is the sort of dynamic effect that you've got moving parts that are perhaps not perfect. And even though the optics are perfect, your system is not not contributing. And then each of these have a whole tree under them where you end up with a f something physical. Um, like on the structure, for example. In fact, I have some of them here. Um, okay, that translates to 100 microns on the, f on the, on the, on the f focal plane. I'm sorry about the typo. Um, the mirrors being aligned to, to 50 nanometers. Um, the tracker, or the spherical aberration corrector, and its deformation. Uh, over, over the full operating scope. Um, the tracker, which is the two and a half ton structure, has to be controlled to six microns. Um, and then this 80 ton structure, excuse me, can't move in, during an observation. Um, so that's despite the wind, uh, despite seismic activity um, and uh, electric motors and compressors and stuff which are in the vicinity. Um, and then to, to actually achieve this um, dome facility seeing what we um, calculated and, and by you know, looking at what other telescopes have done, we came up with a number, magic number of 2 degrees C, said everything exposed must be within 2 degrees Celsius of ambient. Um, which was not that easy to, to actually achieve. The other challenge was telescope efficiency. Um, a normal telescope that follows a star throughout the night um, has basically got the whole night to observe something. Here we have 12 degrees, which depending on where you are in the sky is anything between 30 minutes and one and a half hours. That's the total time that you have. And the, sci the scientists are used to basically keeping the shutter open for that full period, depending on, on how faint they want to go. So... Um, what we don't want to do is to lose time by tele rotating the telescope, by finding an object, because you will now be doing different observations through the course of the night. And, and SALT is a Q-scheduled telescope, which means the scientific community actually don't come here. They sit in their comfy offices in the United States. They apply for uh, time on the telescope through an internet tool. They do a simulation, um, and then they, it ends up on a queue and then there are actually operators and astronomers at the telescope that actually do the observation and then send them their data. So efficiency is really costing money because all these shareholders have paid for their time on the telescope and they actually want data. So one of the things we did is we just developed a timeline, which is not rocket science, but for them this was fantastic because nobody had ever done that before on the telescopes. Um, and so we just looked at the different activities of different systems and the operator, and there they go through the process, they select an object, 
the tracker slews to where it must be because what's not shown there is obviously you need to calculate where everything needs to go. The structure lifts, it rotates, it lowers, and, and it's on air bearings which, which keep it afloat on a, on a, on a very flat surface. Um, and then you start tracking, uh, and then you go into a guidance. It's normally open loop up to some point, and then you do image processing to find uh, the, an object which is bright, and then you lock onto that object, and that gives you the, um, the, 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 the more accurate uh, tracking. So, some of the challenges just relating to the system engineering, um, this was unfamiliar territory to the customer. As I said, they were not, the South African customer was not that uh, technology literate. Um, the team had never built a telescope before. What we were doing is really pushing the limits of physics. I mean, 50 nanometers is not much um, to physically align things and keep them aligned. Um, and that's just one of, one of the specifications. We had multiple contracts from across the world. There's a lot of software that had to be developed. We had a fixed budget and schedule even before the engineering was done. Uh, a lot of reliability. It's supposed to operate 365 nights a year. Uh, the efficiency. Uh, and so it needed a proper process. And it was a once-off development. There's no production afterwards. There's no prototyping. You've got one chance. And you've got to do it, do it right. Um, so uh, you've seen this this graph about uh, influencing the final cost, um, and I was really glad uh, I managed to convince the team that this is what we should do: spend a lot of time system engineering in the beginning. So although the initial schedule had groundbreaking, I think in month five, eventually I had my system spec finished by month nine and groundbreaking was quite a bit later. Um, and actually I think we had groundbreaking shortly after that because some of the civil stuff I, I, I managed to give them the specs on earlier. Um, we followed a, a fairly basic just waterfall development process at the system level and, and it, it really worked well. Um, and, and so I'm not going to bore you by, by taking you through that um, but we really did do this. So we had, and in the end I've got a slide just talking about the verification. Um, we did have specifications. Um, we did not have very many specifications at this level. Um, sorry, at, at this level. We had a system spec. Uh, we had subsystem specifications. Um, and yeah, it was mostly within contractor hands. Many contractors did not have system engineering experience. So it was a bit of a battle. Uh, the civils people really, really protested very strongly, but eventually they even did an acceptance test and a uh, nice little table. We met the specification and they found many, many mistakes because they're not used to being checked up so carefully. Um, and uh, yeah, it was worthwhile. Uh, this is the, the system breakdown structure. So I've sort of touched on each of those up to now. Um, the system engineering activity, uh, quite a, a breadth of activity. I don't expect you to read this, um, but this for me was quite a, an eye-opening experience, is, is actually doing a functional flow diagram for something like this. And it was very, very valuable to, to actually, um, the different colors are different systems, okay, or subsystems, to, to actually draw those colored lines after the fact. So it was, it was really to do the functional allocation. Um, I, I, I did this block diagram. These are all variables or um, information data that's, that's being distributed between different systems. The different, there's real-time stuff. There's stuff that's not that critical from a timing point of view um, and, and whatever the different color codes. Um, but then to be able to say, okay, what makes sense? To simplify the interfaces for the dome is that's it. Um, and actually come up with a, a, a sort of a, a philosophy which really simplified uh, the interfaces immensely and gave the supplier enough control so that they could commission their system and test it in their factory. So each of those systems did need a control system of their own. We couldn't centralize that because there were certain specifications or, or, or requirements that we wanted to sign off at the supplier level. Um, we couldn't take responsibility for that. Um, 
yeah, so this is just zooming into one little corner uh, where we have the tracker, um, the, sort of what it looks like. This is the computer architecture. And yes, we used PCs for all this real-time control. Um, that was quite a contentious decision. Um, and we actually used Ethernet for our data um, communication. Now, for those of you that know, Ethernet is not very predictable from a latency point of view, so normally real-time people don't like that. Um, but it's extremely cost-effective, and there, there's so many um, associated things that you can buy for PCs and, and whatever that we, cho we chose to do that. So we used Windows 2000, which was another very contentious thing, because uh, the astronomical astrono astronomer community prefer Linux. But to find Linux programmers with embedded experience of this nature, to find um, access controllers, for example, that actually plug into a PC um, that works in, a, in that has Linux drivers, that I can carry on and on, um, quite difficult. So we ended up using LabVIEW as our software programming language, very high level, uh, using software engineers, not IT specialists, to, to write the software. Um, and eventually we got away with eight people, whereas uh, one of the telescopes that I've worked uh, with in, in um, the Canary Islands of similar complexity, they had 38 engineers. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to go into that too much. So this is what the primary mirror system looked like at some stage before it was fully populated. Um, the different segments that are aligned there. Um, so the, the big gray pipes are, are the steel structure. The, the tracker is on the top right here. Um, this is what the truss would look like um, on the primary mirror. Uh, so it's, it's individual um, steel pipes that twist into these balls. But it's not as simple as it looks because you know at some stage you need to get something in and there's already something that side and already something that side. And you need to lock it there. And the tolerancing on these nodes where the mirrors come in was, I think, around about one millimeter. Um, but what is, is really complicated is the fact that you need not allowed to have any hysteresis. In other words, this must all act as one solid body. So uh, bolts don't like that because they, there's always a bit of stiction. So when there's a bit of thermal expansion, they creep and, and whatever, which means it moves. And if you get something like that, that happening during the night, the mirror in that vicinity will go out of alignment. Um, so there was a lot of detail that went into designing the bolt fastenings, how you lock them um, and whatever. And, and BKS did an excellent job in actually getting that sorted out. Um, to keep the mirrors aligned, you know, you, you go to this tower in the beginning of the night, but then you need to keep them aligned. They each had uh, three actuators um, on, a, on a pivot system that would be able to control that mirror throughout the night. And th these are the edge sensors which were stuck on the edges of the mirror um, that actually pick up the relative motion between adjacent mirrors. And they actually had to measure then that 50 nanometers of measurement, of movement. And what is, is interesting, it, I did not think it would be possible, but the gap between the mirrors varies between about 10 millimeters and 24 millimeters. So you're talking about two plates like this, which are that far apart, being able to detect a 50 nanometer motion in this direction, not like this, with a capacitive effect. Um, needless to say, that was one of the things that ended up not working that well. Uh, it worked well in the lab, but it was um, very sensitive to humidity. The initial tests that were done, um, it did not seem a problem, um, but then that's one of the things that we just could not solve. So SALT has actually retrofitted those now with inductive sensors, or well, they're still busy actually, um, which was a, quite a costly mistake. Um, this is now looking at the mirror from the back. Um, he has the, 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 that truss. Um, this is just a tool that was developed to actually insert the mirror, and, and this is really a, sort of one of the design drawings of the tool. Um, but here you have the mirror mount. Um, you, when you have the, the actual mirror segment, 
There's a thing called print-through, which is very, very small, but when you rest that thing on the surface, it actually bends. So you get bumps forming on the front surface, so they are actually polished on a truss like that, um, so that those bumps are actually polished out. Um, and then it, it has to be kinematically mounted, otherwise the forces aren't equal, and so each of these have three points, and then this rests on a, on a lever arm system, and these are the the mechanical actuators um, from a German company, a very high precision actuators, but then you take it through a levering system, which gives you even greater accuracy. Um, and this is what it looked like actually going in to the truss. Um, a lot of fun crawling around that big jungle gym. Okay, the building, um, I've said mentioned some of the stuff by now. That's really, I think, the sort of key parts of the building, if you just ignore the, the steel structures in front. Um, and we had to do a lot of analysis to get to that two degrees requirement. Uh, this was one of the models uh, looking at um, the wind uh, flow through the building. Uh, it was done by TF Design uh, here in Stellenbosch. Um, and also looking at the force of the wind on the mirror and seeing whether there would be motion of the mirror as a result of those wind forces and trying to design how we would control the louvers so that you get a, a flow out, out of the, uh, the, the dome opening um, and actually get to um, a good distribution of um, the temperatures. This is just looking at the wind on, on a particular segment um, and then this, these are the temperatures so in this particular picture, <coughs> you can see this 273 going up to 274. So there's a 1.2 degree difference between the maximum and the minimum uh, as predicted by that model. Um, if you get that much airflow going through. Um, I don't think we quite achieved that. Um, although we did a lot of uh, infrared camera work afterwards to try and find hotspots and actually see if we met that. Um, but it is one of the things that worked very well. Just to give you one uh, interesting thing, uh, the, the concrete floor obviously has a lot of heat capacity. And, and, and what they thought of, which I think was very clever, is to put a steel floor 10, uh, 10 centimeters above this floor um, and then have a big hole here and there's a, a duct system in here which sucks out the air and ejects it about 50 meters downwind from the building so that you're actually drawing in this air and it's going under the steel so the steel is actually at ambient but the concrete below can be a lot warmer but it's not exposed to the atmosphere. Um, this is just indicating some of the, the things that had to be done to keep the atmosphere undisturbed. We built these igloos which are really uh, refrigeration systems, well, refrigerated cabinets for all the electronics, control electronics on the telescope. Um, that's my son, uh, a few years ago. He's uh, 23 now, studying at Stellenbosch. Um, and he, what he's standing on is the so-called pier, which is the, the concrete surface that the telescope uh, rotates on. Um, I'm going to tell you more about that in a minute. This is the, the dome going onto the top of that tower. Some very brave people. This, the concrete surface um, had to be extremely flat because you're rotating the telescope and then parking it at a particular location. What you don't want is to have a, a lot of um, angular um, errors coming in when it, every time it parks. You can compensate for that, yes, you can have a lookup table that you've calibrated at the different angles, but it had four legs, so you were getting, uh, it was not a kine kinematic um, system. So you'd get twisting of the structure, which would then go through to the mirror and, and, and misalign it and, and whatever. So um, the civil contractors told us this was the flattest piece of concrete in South Africa. Um, it had to be flat within one millimeter over its entire surface. And they're used to working at around about um, one centimeter would be a high tolerance for a civil engineer. Um, and it didn't work the first time, so we actually had to take off the surface and do it a second time. And, and this was the first time, and you can see uh, flaking of the upper surface 
and there was quite a tight specification on the impact resistance of that surface to, to prevent wear and tear. Um, so this was the structure going in. Um, fortunately, that piece didn't weigh 80 tons, but that was very, very heavy, and it had to be lifted into the building. Um, and just before that, the, the base structure had, was, was lifted in. Um, lots of very clever and dangerous rigging work that had to take place to, to do that. Um, and this was the base structure just before that came in on top of that. And there you can see the pier very nicely um, that the structure rests on. And it had a big central bearing. And in the, in the middle here, there's a hole and all the pipes and stuff no, correction. Um, all the, the, the optical fibers that go to the instrument room would go through there. There's a big cable wrap here um, that had all the, the cooling and the, the electrics and, and instrumentation um, going through there. This is one of the air bearings um, before it was put in operation. So it's, it's basically just like a hovercraft. It's amazing uh, that um, eight of these things can lift this 80-ton Effort, effortlessly um, and it just rides on that air cushion and then you just deflate that and it just goes down very very nicely the dome um, it's it's big um, and it is made out of aluminium um, to to make it light enough to lift and 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 whatever um, this was it being lifted on it snowed that day um, actually Quite nice. There's snow inside the telescope as well. Um, the tracker, I've explained to you that it, it sort of um, tracks the stars as they move across the sky. So here you see what the, the, the optical payload is looking at. So it, it, it's, it's really got a, a spherical aperture and, and, and it starts off using that part of the mirror and then as the, the star moves across the sky it, 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 it shifts up and at some stage it can use the entire mirror and then it uses less and less on that side. So you're not getting the full benefit for the entire track, but you can track something for a long period of time. Um, and the shadow, you don't see that in the image because you focused on infinity, so this actually just equates to lost light. Um, but, but some of the, the, the difficulties there, um, perhaps uh, but on the timing the one millisecond absolute um, they're very good models that tell you exactly where every star is every moment so you, you've got these databases with no, not every star um, the <laughs> brightest couple of million um, and so we would normally use the brightest stars as guide stars so the, ob the, the, the stars that are being observed or the galaxies or whatever would not necessarily be on a database like that, um, but we would know what the RA and deck is, in other words, what their coordinates are. And then we would find within that area a bright star which we would use to guide on. Um, but to, to, to find that, we need to know time very accurately, and that needs to go all the way to the tracker. And I said just now we were using Ethernet, um, and Ethernet's got a jitter of up to 170 milliseconds. Okay, so that doesn't really allow you to, in real time, tell the tracker, go to this position and it will find a star. So the, the philosophy that we followed was to actually uh, predate the information. In other words, we would send the tracker information for the next 20 seconds in an array, and it would interpolate, and then we would send it the exact time. And as part of that array, we would say, by that time, be there, by that time, be there which had a huge simplification effect on the entire design of the telescope because that was the only system that needed to know exactly what the time is and, and what it's doing. Um, and so we had a very accurate GPS time. Oh, and of course the instruments need to know that because they need to record it as part of the data, but um, they didn't really have to move that accurately. Uh, this was the tracker for the Hobby Eberly telescope, uh, which I haven't mentioned yet. It was the first telescope that was built with a similar concept of a fixed angle in, in Texas. So we had the advantage of being able to go there and see what they did wrong and what they did right, obviously. Um, and, and so a lot of the stuff is not stuff that we invented um, that we can take credit for. 
um, but there were many, many significant improvements that we could make um, because they were following sort of traditional telescope design principles. We came in without having done this before and we realized, you know, we don't know how to do this. Let's just try something. Um, this is the tracker being commissioned uh, at Rotec Radar Systems um, during our acceptance testing. Um, this is the payload from a bit closer. So this is a carbon fiber, a carbon composite structure, honeycomb. Um, this is the, the spherical aberration collect, co uh, corrector hanging at the bottom here. So that's where the light comes in. The instruments are all fitting within this um, or on top. Um, and it's big. There you can see uh, one of the engineers standing there. Um, the, this is a, a linear actuator, six of them. No, not six. Yeah, six. Uh, we call it the hexapod. Um, so that would provide tip and tilt to this structure um, and, and, and focus, whereas the, the, the carriage would give you the X and the Y um, movement. Um, just a bit about the optical optic design. So the, the light is coming in from the mirror. This is now the spherical aberration corrector. It was at, at um, four uh, mirror segments very, very well aligned and very specifically designed. They were very expensive to, to manufacture because they had uh, crazy surfaces which were outside the normal manufacturing processes. Um, but eventually, um, then it would give you a sharp focus of light coming from a spherical mirror. And then what, what you would normally do is introduce here a mirror which could deflect the light into different locations for the different instruments. Uh, so that's how we could get the light to, to different instruments. Um, and that is the one thing that went actually went wrong as well. In the process, um, the, the mirrors individually were all kinematically mounted because you don't, they, they enclosed in a steel structure, in a steel tube, and you don't want to introduce any twist into that. But when that spherical aberration corrector, uh, sorry, No, sorry, I need to, I'm going forward now. And I don't know which button to use here. Um, when the spherical aberration corrector was bolted to this, this has actually got a row of bolts going all the way around. And that introduced uh, a, a twist into that whole thing. Uh, and it took uh, about two years to find that as the problem. And um, I'll show you some of the images in a moment um, that were distorted as a result. This is an interesting thing called atmospheric distortion compensator, which is actually two very special lenses. Obviously, you don't want to lose light, so very, very special um, glass that gets used. Um, but as uh, when you look at a sunset, the sun is red because you've got uh, the red light separating out because it's coming through the atmosphere at an angle. And when, you, when it's vertical, it's coming through it perpendicular to the atmosphere and whatever. So if you are observing a star, it gets redder and redder, so you're actually shifting the, the or not, you're separating out the light components. You don't want that because part of what you're trying to observe is, is, is the, 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 the qualities coming from the star, the, the um, photons. So what this does is it, it, it actually rotates with uh, elevation angle and it actually, it's at exactly, it, its setting is exactly uh, correlated to the, to the height above the horizon and it basically just does that redshift back into the image again. Um, this is uh, one of the instruments uh, that went onto that payload, the so-called high-resolution spectrograph. This was done by the University of Wisconsin. Uh, they have a, a lab there called the Jet Propulsion Lab, JPL. You may have heard of them. They do a lot of work for NASA. Um, they, they built this instrument um, and uh, I, it, it was installed after I, the project was completed, so I didn't actually see that myself. Um, just a few words about the control system. Um, I've mentioned a lot of the, the details there, but this is what was in the spec, basically, for the control system. This is what we want. To get the efficiency, um, I wanted it to be point and click. Uh, 
And astronomers were used to Linux, so they would have a command line interface. And it would take them half an hour to get to a star. Uh, I said, no, the technology is there, point and click. Uh, so um, these would then be uh, the, the stars that are being observed. Uh, there's, there's an instrument which has a slit, which is what you've got there. So typically beforehand, the, the person wanting this observation would have specified exactly what that looks like. You would have chosen certain guide stars as, as bright stars. Uh, three gives you the orientation um, as well as the position, so that throughout the observation you could use those for positioning purposes. Um, sorry, I'm lying to you. There's, there's the guider. Um, oh, these were, these were shown as recognized stars from the database so that you can identify that you're on the field. It's not that simple when the sky looks that dense, but it's a tiny segment like this because you're seeing all these faint objects. Um, you do need some cues to help you <laughs> find the right star. Um, and that's what, that, what those are about. Um, this is what it eventually looked like. Um, the image on the left is not a salt image. It, is, it, was, it was put there for test purposes. I'll show you some of the salt images in a moment. Um, but what, one of, the, one of the, the, the real challenges was to, to try and simplify the information going to the operator and the astronomer. The operator would typically be somebody at a technician level. And that, that's, that person, it's their responsibility to point the telescope at the star and keep it there throughout the observation. They're not worried about the science. They, um, their problem is the telescope. And then next to them, uh, the, so that was the, the, the operator screen, next to them would be the astronomer, and they're operating the instruments and, and you know, getting the information about what is the science that is needed and, and operating the instruments. Um, but you need to minimize the information going to that person. Um, so we said, okay, there's a flow throughout the night. So at the top there, you have the tabs, day operations set up in the evening, next target, acquisition, which is the moment that you're actually finding yourself on the sky, guidance, uh, and, and you sort of repeat through these steps throughout the night, and then they shut down in the morning, uh, sort of a maintenance page. Uh, and an operator log where they can insert certain comments and, and things like that. And so this would be the acquisition page. There you would see the, the, the yellow green line is where the tracker has moved through the night in the, in the observation or where it is moving. Uh, certain manual controls, things about the light and, and whatever. I don't want to go into, into that. Um, we had individual design reviews. Uh, a preliminary design review and a critical design review on each of these systems and, and going down even in more detail where possible. Uh, and that was really, I guess, uh, one of the most valuable things we could do because it, we couldn't apply the or enforce the process. But we could sit in a design review with a, with a, a supplier and say, did you think about this? Show us this document, da 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 da, -da. A very important tool to actually get what we what we needed. So in the in the the, the verification process, um, sorry, the red circles don't really mean each. They come from a presentation which I did previously, but we did go through those processes. We at the um, the supplier, we would do that, uh, and then we had these final integrated system ATPs um, at the telescope, and then actual trial operation where it was operated by the um, astronomers and by the operational staff and they had to sign off that everything was working. Um, I'm not going to go through that. I think our time is basically up. Um, we did have a verification cross-reference matrix. It's actually interesting. The astronomers uh, hated me at some stage because I was forcing them to put things in writing, to agree to something, to not change their minds and whatever. But when we got to this phase, they loved me because they now had a handle on how to force the engineers to give them what they wanted. Um, and it, it was a very painful process, but it, it was really necessary. So we went back to the spec and even at, at, at a system level, subsystem level, looked at the individual requirements uh, and what's not shown there in the reference column, we had individual test procedures and it wasn't 100% coverage. I guess our coverage was probably 80%. Um, 
but it had added a huge amount of value um, to what we had. There was a committee that was um, signing off the individual um, tests. Um, they were really re representing the customer, um, and they had to, to really say that they are happy. And um, there was an understanding, and, and I think you, uh, I should say this, a telescope like this, we, it took us five years. Um, the closest other example is, is about a seven-year project, and it was less complex. And the Grantacam telescope uh, done by Spain started before this, and I think they only finished something like four years ago. Um, so uh, there's a process, a lot of this, because you're pushing the limits of physics, there's a process of refinement. You, you actually have to calibrate things out. So you have to say, okay, here's the problem. The, the, you, you have a blurred image. What's causing it? Oh, it's this. Okay, let's write this model to model this thermal effect and see if it helps. And, and it's an operational issue to continually improve the telescope. So as a construction team, we had to take it to a point, but we, we couldn't guarantee that it's going to be finished in the timescales that we or be perfect. Um, and so to give you an idea... Um, I said that the image quality is, is the big thing. Um, by September 03, we have what we call so-called first light, the first time we actually had telescope, uh, light through the telescope onto a camera system. The image quality, which you'll remember, was specified as 1.3. Uh, what we measured was 5. Um, and then it, a year later, it had come down to about 1.4, 1.5. Now, what is that? Yeah, about 1.5. Um, so that first light image, that's what it looked like. Um, the line is because these are actually two CCD detector chips next to each other. Um, so there is actually a black spot in the middle. And, and later on that was taken out in software. Um, but that's really what it looked like. Uh, by November that better image looked like this. Still not perfect. And you can see there, there seem to be little tails on some of the spots on the top left there. Uh, the, some of them are nice and round, um, and depending on how long you expose it, that will obviously be brighter or, or, or less bright. But um, that's good enough to do some science, but that's not what it is designed to do. And if you go to the SALT website today, you'll see this photograph of the same object. Um, obviously a longer exposure, but you can see how rich that area of the sky is. Um, and, and, and how faint you actually can go now. So was it worthwhile to, put, to do system engineering? I think most definitely yes. Um, one of the astronomers that were really criticizing me a lot in the beginning came back to me um, towards the end of the project and said, yeah, if it wasn't for this, uh, it, nothing would have worked. So uh, they really bought into it and they actually when they were appointing an operational team, the first position they were advertising was a systems engineer to actually lead the technical <laughs> team on, on, at Sutherland. Um, yeah, I've mentioned some of the, the, the problems. Um, perhaps the last line there, operational staffing was underestimated. That was actually very sad. Um, one of the first things that the, the people at Hobby Ebley Telescope told us when we started the project was don't underestimate the complexity of operating the telescope, appoint your operation team early so that when the construction people leave, they know how to operate and run the telescope. And so two years ahead of completion, we actually started uh, saying to the, to, to the observatory, listen, you need to start appointing people and whatever. They appointed one person and um, I think by the time most of the team had left, I think they had three or four people of a team that should have been about ten people. Um, and obviously things then, you know, there's a lot of stuff that didn't work afterwards. There was just incomplete transfer of knowledge. Um, so this is the, sort of the, the core team. The, the project scientist is the funny guy on the right. Um, and Kubus uh, Meiring is not in the picture. And that's it. Thank you.
I don't know how much time we've got, but um, I'm open to questions if you guys have still got some time. The philosophy, if you look at sort of embedded systems, I, I did a lot of work on the Roy Falk there, you, you saw. What you do is you, you buy the disks, you duplicate them, you put them in the safe, and you run on that software forever. You don't try and change the operating system because there's no need to. So, so it, it, uh, we, we chose the most stable version of Windows with a lot of um, really good stuff in it. We firewalled it. So there's no, no security updates, no stuff like that needed. Um, and that's the software. And we've got the disks. You don't need to be compatible to the latest version of Windows. You don't, whatever. So we actually, the, the, that computer architecture, I didn't point it out, but there are two, two networks that were firewalled from each other. So the one, the operators and the staff would have access to. The other is back-end stuff. It's like a PLC or it's like the control thing on an aircraft. Don't touch it. It's, it's, it's a technical, technical system. Yeah, now that, that is, is definitely a thing. So there was uh, some legacy plan, and, and particularly around buying stuff. And what you do have to do, I mean, yeah, there, there has to be upgrades and things, and they've actually now replaced those systems. We made the mistake of buying um, high-end desktops to, to do a lot of the control instead of rack-mounted computers. Um, and and that, was, that was an oversight. Um, so they've now, I don't know how long ago, but actually put in very nice racks with, with decent computers and stuff. But it's, it's mostly the original software and whatever. What is, is, is very nice is the fact that we use LabVIEW. Um, it's not plug and play to upgrade, but LabVIEW keeps current. And, and so you can import your old LabVIEW code into the new LabVIEW, and the new LabVIEW is keeping up with the latest operating systems and stuff. And, and yes, there's then a process to make sure you haven't broken anything. Um, but, the, you know, the legacy do doesn't go away. It's always a problem, regardless of what you chose. Um, anything else? Thank you. Um,